On this episode of Eager to Know, the thing that separates people who embrace their creativity from those who don't, the awesomeness of teachers, and why I mentally transform myself into a second grader when I paint. We all have a creative part of our brain, whether we use it or not, for generating new ideas, problem solving, and just viewing ourselves in this world. I am Ricky McGeckron, an artist living in Chicago, and I am eager to know and share with you all how people of a creative leaning have brought this way of thinking to the forefront and how it has shifted outcomes. Marlon Lyles is an artist with a varied background, including time as a Chicago Public Schools English teacher. I love teachers, and it is always great to be able to speak with them. Marlon's unique and interesting artwork is called Geometric Abstraction, and it is inspired from a surprising source. I have always loved dance. I actually studied dance for a little period of time. Uh, The Joseph Holmes Dancers used to be a uh, dance company here in Chicago, uh, and that was 20, 25 years ago. But, so what kind of, not that I would even mm-hmm. know the ans- what your answer will mean, but what kind, because <laughs> I know nothing about dance, what kind of dance? You do know about dance. Uh, I studied ballet and jazz is what I studied when I studied with them. And I was 21, 22 years old when I first started taking dance classes. But, and at that time it was too old for me to do anything probably professionally. But growing up as a kid, that's what I wanted to do. You know, I won dance contests when at family picnics and things like that. But so I've always loved to dance and I still love the idea of dancing. I am part of Chi Town Square's square dancing group. Oh, and, yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. And so I love to dance. Um, and my work, my artwork right now, well, a lot of people say this, which is, I feel like a very great compliment, is that they see movement. In my work. Absolutely. They see rhythm in my work. This makes complete sense. I did not know (laughs) that you had a background in dance, but I'm very familiar, obviously, because we kind of share studio. Right. So I'm very familiar with your artwork. That makes complete sense to me because it's about movement and pattern and, yep. Rhythm. Rhythm, yeah. yeah. So that's quite often, I've, I've done art pieces where I'm completely standing up and dancing and moving around and just feeling the music. And I listen to Janet Jackson and have a great time with that. So, yeah, there's a lot of movement in my work. And yeah. I, I think that that's, it's just, that's important to me. And for some, someone to see that and it resonate with them. Uh, one lady came to our gallery recently and she said, I, I, I see sound in your work. Mm-hmm. And I said, Fantastic. I said, that's, you know, that's your experience. I think I see sound in your work too. So Marlon, I know that you are a teacher. Teachers have a special (laughs) place in my heart. So I'm very curious about this and I will probably have a lot of questions for you. I have plenty of answers for you, Rick. I went into teaching late in life and I had worked in the medical and legal fields for 25 plus years. So I decided to become an English teacher. And I did that, Uh, became an English teacher. I worked at uh, NCPS for five years. In what grades? My initial year, I taught sixth, seventh, and eighth grade English. Oh, my goodness. Or they called it uh, language arts at the time. And then we opened a high school. So I started teaching high school English as well. So wait a minute, sixth, seventh, and eighth? 
Yes. So I feel like the difference between a sixth grader uh-huh. and an eighth grader mm-hmm. is really large. I feel that you do a mm-hmm. lot of changing and growing. At least mm-hmm. I did. That's, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a big difference. It's it's very true, but it also depends on where you are. So I was at, quote unquote, a good school in here in the city. And so my every most of my kids were reading at level. But I definitely had some sixth graders who were reading at a ninth grade level, and I had some eighth graders who are reading at a sixth grade level. So no matter what, when you're in a classroom, you have to differentiate with the levels of where the students are, and you have to just meet them where they are. Okay. So, but it was challenging. My favorite class initially when I started teaching were, were my eighth graders. They, they just didn't need a lot, and they could come to class prepared. The sixth and seventh graders were still young and needed a little bit more than just teaching. Teaching, yeah. Was it more of like a coaching that you would give them in addition to the teaching, or I think it was just a level of maturity that they didn't have at the time. Which you know, sixth and seventh graders they don't have that much maturity, but the eighth graders were fantastic. And then I went on to teach high school. And each grade level higher that I taught, I really enjoyed. So when I got to teach seniors, I was ecstatic. Okay, interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so as they became, was it because of the way they behaved or was it because you were able to teach them subject matter that was more like advanced? I think when you're just able to teach literature. So we didn't have to, in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, we were still covering reading and writing. We broke the subjects up and we taught each one of those. But when you get into high school, you just teach literature. Okay. And you're still focusing in on grammar and those kinds of issues, but you're generally talking more about concepts and larger issues, bigger picture issues when you're dealing with seniors. For instance, reading uh, the last class, one of the last classes that I taught was an African-American lit class. Okay. And it was just spectacular because the kids were motivated and self-driven so we did they did a lot of independent reading and they chose their own books and they would come to class ready to talk about it discuss argue and it was really it was that those were phenomenal moments okay great so it Mm -hmm. sounds like you're able to and english was not my my strong suit (laughs) i was in advanced placement chemistry calculus and physics i was not in advanced placement english uh, in high school, but what was the uh, challenge? I don't know, but uh, but it sounds like you're. It's it probably was less about. In addition to just teaching the literature and understanding mm-hmm. it, is it probably about how that applies to the bigger world? And how oh, it definitely, to the bigger world. Okay, most definitely. Whenever you're teaching, I think any subject, you want the you want the student to make a real world connection, and with literature, that's very easy to do. But a lot of the literature that students read don't necessarily reflect who they are. So they may have a harder time connecting to the literature. Okay. So, but bringing African-American lit to children of color, bringing um, literature that's written by Mexicans and and, and people of other ethnic backgrounds to the classroom so that these kids can see someone who looks like them in literature and having some of the same experiences that they may have had. Yeah. So, okay. I have so many questions. So first of all, I just want to put out there the reason I love teachers because I think that they can make 
such a big difference on kids. I know mm-hmm. that I had a couple teachers in elementary school who really made a huge impact on me on how I like viewed myself in the world. Mm-hmm. And it really, it was very important and it really shaped me. And I hear that from people a lot. So Agreed. I'm sure you know that, but mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, a teacher can be a, an amazing transformative power in a kid's life. I can, you know, def- so I think that's, that's wonderful. Um, so was the, the student population very diverse? It was. Okay. Yeah, it was very diverse. And we probably had a majority, but it really didn't seem like it. It seemed to be pretty balanced in regards to all of the different ethnic backgrounds of students that we had in the classrooms. Okay. So that was really wonderful. And lots of students were speaking different languages and were taking world languages as well. So it was pretty diverse. Yeah. So I, this is interesting. I was just having a conversation with someone. Um, I watched this movie. Um, I was watching a couple old movies from the 50s. Mm-hmm. I watched um, Anchors Away mm-hmm. or On the Town. Mm-hmm. And then I watched, um, what was the one? Oh, Dial M for Murder. Okay. And one of the comments that I, I made to this person was that, you know, it's interesting. There was It was all white people. Mm-hmm. There was like no people of color. And right. it made me think about, and so then we started talking about you know, growing up as a gay kid, mm-hmm. um, that was one of the biggest, the biggest issues mm-hmm. for me is that I did not see anyone like me. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't really a big bullying issue with me, maybe right. a little bit, uh-huh. but honestly, that was smaller than the fact that I didn't see myself in anyone mm-hmm. in anywhere. And so when you talk about, um, you know, this experience of me watching these movies mm-hmm. and you talk about these kids reading this literature, mm-hmm. um, potentially when they don't see themselves in it, I can see how that would be a huge, a huge deal. I think one of the big issues is that we, so much of literature is taught from, we have to teach the canon. We have to teach the kids basically, there's a <laughs> don't look like that, right? Well, I don't know what that means. So the canon, <laughs> the canon is, is a group of literature that is generally taught across the board. Oh, okay. So we have, it's a literary canon. So we're teaching Shakespeare and we're teaching various um, uh, writings and and literature pertaining to those groups. And so generally most kids across the country, if they're in eighth grade or if they're in seventh grade, a lot of them have read the same book. Because it's from the literary canon that that we have to teach from. But the literary canon was created by not a diverse group of people. So therefore, the literary canon is generally focused in on white literature. Sure. And so to bring in other literature and to validate other literature is something that's very transformative for children as they read. Uh, I remember a couple of pieces that... Uh, my student read, and one of them was Malcolm X. Okay. I had a senior who read Malcolm X. That was part of his um, independent reading in my African-American lit class. And he told me afterwards he did not like the book. He did not like the fact that he had to read the book, but it was the first book in his high school career that he had read from cover to cover. Okay. He didn't like it because it made him cry. It made him think. It made him angry. But all of those reasons is were so positive to me because that's exactly what literature should do. 
Mm-hmm. It, it can be just like art. Hopefully it will create a, an emotional response. And that's exactly what he had. And so I carry that with me to think that this young man had been through, you know, 12 grades of school, never fully read a book from cover to cover. And now he gets into one that causes him a lot of angst, passion, sadness, and I think more than anything, he could probably see himself okay. as this young man that uh, Malcolm X was as well. So that's amazing that you got to experience something because he'll probably oh, yeah. always remember that yeah. for the rest of his life. Yeah. There's so many moments as a teacher that you have that experience that you can see that you're making a difference in a child's life. And to have that experience is, it's overwhelming and, but you you have to come right back down and know that there are 30 other kids in your class that, you know, may not be having that moment at yeah. that time, but hopefully they're going to have that moment at some point in time during the time that you're teaching them or if they're in other classes, you know, either way, you're just hoping for them for the light to go on But yep. in the classrooms. When you see the light go on, you just, you just can't imagine what that feels like, you know? Um, so yeah, I think teaching literature gave me the opportunity to connect with the students and to express a lot of, you know, what I had gone through when I was a teenager and, and what I, how I grew up. Because when the students see you as a, as a teacher and they have an idea about who you are, but they really don't know who you are. So quite often we would have discussions and I would connect to the, to, to the literature as well. And in that, I would tell my story to my students. Okay. You know, of being growing up, um, you know, African-American here in Chicago and then moving out to the suburbs when I was in eighth grade and the challenges of being a smart kid coming from a Catholic school, coming out to the suburbs. We moved out to Hinsdale and what that was like, Okay, you know, for the African-American kids, they were not so thrilled about having a smart African-American kid in their classrooms. Okay. And the white kids weren't too happy about having a smart African-American kid in their classes. What, and the what, teachers how, weren't how old, either. How old were you when this I was happened? in eighth grade. Oh, that's like the, that's a tough time to do that. It was. Yeah, absolutely. And then going into high school, uh, going into high school, there were 20 African-American kids in my high school out of 1,600 kids. Oh my goodness. Okay. So you know, we kind of stood out (laughs) in a way, but, um, yeah, I mean, we stood out in a way, but it was, it was a wonderful experience and it was also pretty blah at the same time. Was it a mixed experience for you or was it mostly negative or was it? Um, It was mixed. The, the opportunities that I was afforded by going to Hinsdale South were, pretty big but when you're in eighth grade Mm -hmm. you're not thinking about opportunities you're just thinking about having friends right at that time eighth grade was you know it was nine months it was quick we had just moved out there and the challenge the challenges started at that point yeah and i didn't understand them fully but and i thought they were odd but I, I was there to do what I came there to do. I came there to learn. I came there to, you know, get an education. So that's what I was doing because that was my focus. But I did observe all of these other things that were happening around me. And then I think as I got into high school, it became 
it became more challenging, definitely became more challenging, uh, being ostracized by both groups. You know, the African-American kids were ostracizing me because I was smart and I was in different classes than they were. Okay. But the white kids were ostracizing me because I was in those classes <laughs> that they probably felt I shouldn't have been in. Okay. And, you know, and I, we had the teachers to deal with and, you know, lots of other challenges as well. Okay. But, uh, but I think all of that experience helped me because my, between my junior and senior year, I was an AFS student, American Field Service. So I won a scholarship. And I went to Spain for two summer for a summer for two months. Oh. And I lived over in Spain with the family for oh, two wow. months. Did you speak Spanish at the time? I did. I, I mean, mean you, were, you know, high school Spanish. Right. You were like 17? I was 17. Yeah. I was 17. And so I was international, you know, from that age and haven't stopped yet. Were so. you there with a group or were you there solo? Um, we went with a group. So there were six, 60 American students that went to Spain that summer, but then we, we all went to different families and things like that. So I went to a family in the northern part of Spain in the, in the Basque region. Okay. And it was... How did... Um, did you experience. see any difference in being an Afri African-American kid there versus here? Oh, absolutely. Uh, people didn't cross the street <laughs> when I walked down the street in Spain, people didn't look at me as if I was about to rob them. And so not having that is, was, it was, it was a delight. Okay. It was, yeah, it was a delight. So people didn't have any expectations as well as the majority of the people that I met, met had a, a sentiment of, you know, um, that they were sorry for what African-Americans were experiencing in America. At that time, this was 1981 that I okay. went there. And so they, they, they wanted to know, you know, what my political position was. They wanted to know what I thought about um, the various happenings in the states. And so they were very aware of. And were you, were you willing and open to discuss that with them? Absolutely. At the time, except being 17 years old, I wasn't very political. Right, right. Uh, I didn't particularly like the administration that we had at that time, <laughs> but I wasn't that political. So they, they, was that Reagan? Yeah. Okay. So they informed me quite a bit about, you know, what their opinion was about what was happening in the States. But, um, yeah, but they think that experience being abroad and seeing what life could be like in a different environment where your skin color didn't, it didn't seem to make a difference. And I'm pretty sure that it didn't at when I was there. Okay. So we got academics, we got mm -hmm. athletics, mm -hmm. we haven't really talked about um, creativity. <laughs> um, so mm -hmm. I know when you were teaching uh, um, English, mm -hmm. is writing part of that? Or yes. is it just... It, okay, so Big writing. Time. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's sort of... With, is that considered like the other side of the same coin? You yes. know, writing? Okay. Yeah. Um, so I'm assuming that you, we do not consider reading literature a creative endeavor but writing would be is that a fair statement right. yes uh the creative aspect of reading though is to understand and to be able to pick up the nuances of a writer so when the writer okay. is using different um literary techniques and students or readers in general can pick them up you know if is this a simile? I mean, similes and little, you know, comparisons and, and aspects of, again, literary, um, literary technique. Yeah. So it, it can be very creative to read because generally that in, helps to inform you as a writer. Okay. You know, so, so really like that part of your, 
that creative part of your brain mm-hmm. gets stimulated by these or has to be paying attention Absolutely. to pick up on these things. Yes. Okay. But quite often as a reader, we don't look at it from that perspective. We read to gather information and to, especially students, you know, they're reading to gather information and take a test. You know, <laughs> they're not, they're not, yeah. they don't want to get so deep into the material, but once they do, it, it, it just kind of blows their mind. You know, so were you a were you a writer at all? Was that a part? Was that part of your? But I guess what I'm trying yeah. to get. Well, I guess what I'm trying to get to is um, whether being a writer would how that affects how you read. Because for instance, mm-hmm. I know that now that I'm a painter, mm-hmm. like I look at paintings completely different. Com- you know, you go to, you go to the museum yeah. and you yeah. see things in a different way. Yeah. So, but I'm I'm sure that would map to read reading and writing as well. I think in the practice of reading and close reading. So when you're reading closely, uh, you're definitely paying attention to everything and not just um, doing kind of what's called blind reading. What's or imp- close, or close reading? Is that a term I should know? Close reading is like really paying attention to the what, what you're reading, really playing, paying close attention to the literature. So a lot of people skim. Pop people look for the big ideas or the big themes or something like that. But when you start to read and you read, as you're reading, you all of a sudden realize there's something else that's happening here, maybe in between the lines. Yep. What's happening in between the lines? A lot of people don't read like that. Most people kind of skim and they don't get the gist of what the author is maybe trying to communicate. Okay. So that close reading, and again, like I said, looking for the literary techniques that exist in every writer's writing, um, people can pass those by very simply. Sometimes you could sit down and ask someone, Tell me, when, when does your book take place? They have no idea. You can ask them about the characters and they'll know about so-and-so, and but they have no idea when this is happening. They okay. have no idea where it's happening kind of sometimes. Okay. So it's about close reading and being able to, to retell the story in your own words, as well as include what the author, what you feel like the author is doing. Because we, we can, someday in, in literature, we say death to the author because the author wrote the book. Now you come with your experience and you read the book. And so your experience reading that book is going to be different than my experience reading the book. So what the author may have intended may or may not be happening, you know? So so it becomes a little bit more personalized. Absolutely. Which is probably why people like books as opposed to the movie. Yeah. Because, you know, <laughs> yeah. you resonate more with the book because yeah. you are, yeah, you're kind of imprinting yourself on it. Indeed. Indeed. So where did the creative door start to open for you, for you actually being a, because now mm. you're an artist, and um, where, where did that start to happen for you? It started with dance. So when did you start expressing that on paper? And like, did you just, how did that manifest itself? <laughs> you know, every people come into your life for a reason, I believe. And uh, my husband and I started scuba diving years ago. And with that, we met uh, a young lady who was an art teacher. And we, he started taking lessons with her. And then uh, probably about a year later, a little bit more than that, he, for Christmas, he gave me three lessons with her. And those three lessons have turned into three and a half years of lessons at this point in time. And 
start off with all of the basics, I believe, that you start off in art class of drawing and sketching and blind drawing and, you know, moving and all of these other kinds of exercises that we did. And then eventually I was exploring more and more and more. And my teacher said, I want you to focus because I was a little bit all over the place. She would come and we would sit down and I was, I'd have acrylics to show and I have drawings to show and I was doing something else. And she said, you know, let's focus. And so I started to focus more and start to create work that was, I guess you could say ready for sale. It was to the point that I moved into what I current, what I'm currently doing, which is geometric abstraction. And I've been with that for probably a little bit over a year, year and a half now. And so, I, so that was not how you started. You, you eventually got into it. I eventually got into it. Yes. I eventually got into it because she told me to do, I want you to do a series. I want you to do yeah, a series. And I decided to do a series of butterflies. Um, I like butterflies. They're balanced. They're powerful. They're, you know, they're fragile. And I created a series of butterflies. Mm -hmm. And uh, with that, just the geometric abstraction developed. But it was also in my earlier work. When I go back and I look at the earlier work that I was doing, I, I did a lot of mark making when I first started um, art. When I start, first started producing art, um, I did a lot of mark making, whether it was just pencil on paper or whether it was acrylic or if it was oil, <clears throat> whatever it was, mark making was just, it, that was the repetitive part of it. And I think that was the sound, possibly, that was the movement that I was trying to, that I was, that I was learning how to and, and, and headed towards, well, especially so, with my work now. So I feel like there's a element of fearlessness with you that you are able to produce work that is so unique. Like, how do you, is that something that you've always been or was it been fearless and not afraid to express yourself in a way that's different from everybody else? Or was that just working with a teacher who gave you support? <laughs> is that just part of your personality? Um, I think a little bit of both. I think there is that fearlessness, but I think there's also a lot of fear as well there. But the fearlessness is definitely comes out in the sense of this is what this is organic and this is what I'm producing and I don't think much beyond that. I think about focusing in on what I'm doing and I, it's kind of a meditative process and when I'm finished with it it moves along. And again, it becomes ready for sale, but it's, you're not, you're, I'm happy with it. And I want other people to interact with it. I want people to experience it. Um, and again, if the feedback comes back that I, this makes me happy or I feel something, I see movement, I feel movement, I, I see sound, then I kind of feel like, great. You okay. get it. So it sounds like you're kind of in a, like a little bit of a blinder situation where you are just focused on expressing your creativity mm -hmm. in the way that feels right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're hoping that it works. Right. But ultimately, the most important thing is that you express it 
and we'll see what people think. Is absolutely. That, is, okay. Absolutely. Yes, I think there's always fear. Uh, my work takes a long time. Just for a 9 by 12 piece that I'm doing, which is ink on paper, it can take 10, 12 hours mm -hmm. because of the planning, because of the uh, insecurity to a certain degree about I don't know exactly how to do this right. But you I'm going to... You mean the execution part? Yeah, the execution part. Okay. So yeah. you kind of have the vision, but you... Right. I, you know, I want to create... Again, most of the pieces are pretty organic. There are a couple of pieces that I have planned where I, you know, I did a sketch and then I went ahead and created the piece. But the majority of the pieces that I have created, I create directly on paper with ink and... That's it. There's no prototype. There's, <laughs> there's no drawing of it. Um, and I'm, I've been going back and forth with doing a little bit more of that now because I see how fun it is and I see how many different forms and shapes and ideas can come from sketching. So I've started to sketch a lot more than with, I ever have. With pencil? With pencil, yes, which is interesting because I, when I start get to get an idea and I get a concept and I'm rolling with it, these I don't want to sketch it anymore. I want to create it. I, I where, want to create that piece. Where do your ideas come from? Um, like the part of your mind, like the dance part of your mind, or do they come from the literature part of your mind? Or is it from a fresh place that you've just recently discovered? That's interesting. Uh, definitely from, definitely from my emotions, on one level, and then definitely from the dance, that is, to express in a certain way. Uh, when I go back and I look at my pieces, I can see different types of music, I can see different types of dance, and within that piece, and, but that's generally afterwards so i'm not thinking oh i want to create a piece here that's mm -hmm. gonna look like the cha-cha yep. it generally comes afterwards and then you realize oh that originated from this right yeah so the a lot of the impetus for what i do sometimes it's interactions with people sometimes it's you know based upon my emotions and but quite often i'm always listening to music when I'm drawing, always listening to music. So that kind of influences me as well. So did you, were you a visual artist when you were a kid? This just seems, yeah. odd, this seems odd to me that, mm -hmm. um, because what you're doing, like you're expressing on paper, all of like what's kind of what's going on in your head. Mm -hmm. And it seems odd to me that you would not, where did that all go when you were a kid? <laughs> like, did you not have, a, you, you didn't have an outlet for it? it where, you no, know? I, you know, I never took an art class in high school. I used to draw, okay. but you know, the silly drawing that high school students did who weren't in art class. And later on in life, I don't think I ever picked up a pen to draw a picture at all. But if I did, it would have, been probably something geometric yeah it would have been 
a triangle and then trying to make it, you know, two-dimensional and three-dimensional and doing various kind of acts like that. So it's kind of funny to look at the work that I have now. And if I ever go back and find something that I was doodling, if I go back and I, I, I love crossword puzzles and uh, Sudoku and I I can go back and look through those books. And when I look through those books, if I ever see where I was doing some sketching, it'll be of some type of geometric pattern. Yep. And so now it just seems to have manifested itself into me being able to express myself this way through the universe bringing me together with a teacher <laughs> and us getting to this point. So... So one of the things that I hear a lot in interviewing people on this podcast is when kids are, kids are very creative and they're in art class and they are very fearless. And then at some point something changes. And as people become adults, they are less that yes. and they tend to be um, more full of fear about being creative and they're afraid of being made fun of, et cetera. Um, can you relate to what I just described? Oh, very much so. I believe as kids, we are initially, it's okay, it's okay to go outside the line. And then at some point, you're supposed to be able to color inside the line <laughs> as if that's the better picture. Mm -hmm. And then later on in life, after we follow all of the rules, after we take all of these standardized tests, after we do all of these standardized activities, at some point we are given license to be creative and we are given license to go outside of the line again. And that's very hard for people to do. It's very hard for people. As people, as I talk to friends and family and they say, oh my God, your work is amazing. I could never do that. I can't even draw a straight line. And I, I said, who said you had to draw a straight line to be an artist? Nobody ever said that. But that concept of what, what artists have to have that other people don't possess, as if there's this big divide between people who don't express themselves creatively and people who do. And I think the big divide is fear. And you, I think what we were saying is that there isn't a big divide when we're kids. No. Because we're in first grade when we're in art class. Yeah. Everyone's the same. Exactly. And then suddenly now that we're adults right. and now we have people that are artists right. and then people that can't even draw, <laughs> draw a stick figure. Right. But we were really, we, at one point, everyone was the same. Right. And I think that as we grow older now, we have had the experience of being criticized and critiquing other people, of art, whatever it is, you know, generally by at this point in time in our age, uh, you know, 40s, 50s, we have become critics. And so as critics, we can express ourselves, but if we put ourselves on the other side of and, and be the artist and expect the critique, that's a different position for a lot of people to be in. And a lot of people don't want to be in that position. They don't want to be criticized. They don't want... So people are afraid to go out and, and do something creative. Yeah. I mean, and I would say that's more than just creative. Mm -hmm. I think that people are afraid of doing anything that's outside of the norm. Mm -hmm. um, even, even if it is something that they really feel is true to themselves. Absolutely. Um, and try and taking risks and, and right. all of that. 
So I know when I'm in the studio, so I was a, a kind of an arts, I was an artsy kid. Okay. And I was very, very confident in my art ability when I was in like elementary school. Oh, wow. For whatever reason. And mm -hmm. I just, I always was, I always thought that I was um, a solid artist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think people gave me praise or whatever, although I definitely was not doing it for that. Mm -hmm. Then you become an adult. And then it's a whole nother world up there in your brain. What I will tell you is when I'm painting, I go back. I'm in second grade when I'm painting. Mm -hmm. Like I become, I have to go back to being seven. Right. And forgetting about my life as it is now. Correct. But I'm in, you know, Mrs. Sistrom's class mm -hmm. in, you know, second grade. And I am that seven-year-old mm -hmm. because that's where I can be the most creative yeah. because I didn't have any fears right. back then. So I have to like artificially force myself there <laughs> by some miracle i'm able to do it but That's it fantastic. actually but it actually does work and right. it's for the exact reason that, that we're talking about mm -hmm. i think right now as as i work i working geometric abstraction is it's about lines it's about precision so there's a certain amount of freedom that I do have in regards to what I can produce, but there's also a certain amount of constraint in regards to the way that I produce it. Produce it. So the clean lines, the exact proportions are, are kind of restricting mm -hmm. in, in a certain way, but there is another uh, collage, area of collage that I have done that I plan on getting back into. And there is a symbol that I have that uh, is emerging, starting to emerge in my work, that is a significant uh, figure for me. I call him the G-Man. And this G-Man is a individual that fits within all the lines. You know, it's, it's the um, ideal 1950s gentleman, courteous, and, and all of those proper... Um, attributes, but also no one sees behind the suit. And I'm starting to play with what's behind the suit, what makes the man. And what makes the man isn't what we see. And so the, I plan on doing something <laughs> very different coming up in the in the near future. Okay. But I'm <clears throat> very curious also, <laughs> about this. And very I can't excited. Wait to see it. <laughs> cool. Good. Yeah. So are there a couple things that you can tell listeners to mm -hmm. provide guidance on, you know, unlocking their creativity or moving things forward in their lives using the creative part of their mind? Absolutely. I think be open-minded. <clears throat> I think as adults, we start to believe that we know a lot. And sometimes we think we know it all. And we need to be in that second grade class again, we need to be open <clears throat> to the way that other people approach ideas. We need to be open to um, other um, mediums of art. Uh, right now, I've been, again, doing the geometric abstraction, but starting in about 10 days, I'm going to start taking a printmaking class. And so I'm opening up my horizons. I am opening up the possibilities and gathering information um, and techniques and knowledge. So I think that we can gather. I think we possibly, maybe all artists do this, where we gather and then we focus. 
and then we gather and we focus. And I think that we should continuously do that okay. and don't limit ourselves to just doing what we do, unless that makes you happy. You know, if that makes you happy to paint, you know, the same painting every day in different colors, then great. Then, you know, but do what makes you happy. And I'm very much about gathering information to improve what I do. Okay, great. So where can people find more information about your work and see more of your work? They can look to my Instagram account, which is Marlon Lyles, M-A-R-L-O-N-L-Y-L-E-S. They can also come to the Lyco Gallery, L-Y-C-O Gallery, at the Jalbi Art Center, which is at 1029 West 35th Street. And you can come there on the third Friday of the month, which is a large open house, and they generally have a special exhibit on the second floor, as well as my Facebook page, Marlon Lyles Art. So okay, great. And those I've those been to the spots. Art Center on uh, many times yes. for your open house, and it's wonderful, and I would definitely encourage people to go and visit it. It was a great experience. There's a lot of um, a lot of different artists there. So Absolutely. In addition, to, in addition to seeing you guys' stuff, um, there's tons. Of, it's like four floors or something. Correct. It's, it's huge. Yes. Tons of floors, tons of artists, galleries, and studios. And I forgot to mention one other location, which is the Greenleaf Art Center. And they have two open houses a year. The next open house is coming up on, I believe, May 10th. So it's a nice Friday um, event. Lots of artists again, across the board and including me, including Rick. Absolutely. <laughs> and yeah, so please come on out to those events. And if you want to contact me, please do so. And I respond quickly. So. All right, great. This was, this was excellent. This was amazing. I, yeah, Thank you so much. You're very welcome. I enjoyed this. Wow. My name is Ricky McGeckrin, and you have been listening to Eager to Know, the podcast. If you haven't already, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Eager to Know podcast. 